Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hi, this is Mark Homer for Mark My Words. This is the second episode to last week's instalment. You'll probably want to listen to last week's episode before you listen to this one. I hope you get lots of value and enjoy it as much as I did delivering it. The next area to be cognizant of is your loan to value. The loan to value of any property loan or, or mortgage is, is very important and in the large part, I take this over the whole value of the portfolio or all of the properties in, in the portfolio rather than looking at it too much on an individual property by property basis. Most banks will lend to you at, say, 75% loan to value. So the, the loan is 75% of the property's value when you purchase it or remortgage it. And typically, we would start around that level, 70, 75 But over a period of time, Rob and I like to let that loan to value drift down. And for me, that reduces the risk of the investment and your portfolio overall. It protects it to some degree against shocks. And it just gives you a bit more wriggle room when problems come along that are unexpected. Because as we know in in any business, 90% of the things that you worry about and are concerned about in business or in life in general don't actually happen. it's It's the things that come along that you really didn't expect that actually challenge you and really create the most risk to your portfolio or your business. One example of that could be the vote to come out of the EU, which obviously most business owners, the financial markets and even the government didn't expect. That's something that the government and the Bank of England have had to deal with. They didn't expect the result that they got, but they were probably quite pleased that they gave themselves some wriggle room in the budget. And they raised taxes, maybe not the headline rate of tax, but they've certainly collected a lot more taxes in. Uh, reduce spending and probably fix the roof when the sun is shining. So when the difficult times do come along, they've got more room to manoeuvre, more cash to put into the response. And perhaps fiscally, they're able to reduce taxes and increase spending at least until the sun comes back out again. Well, it's not that difficult for your portfolio. As you go through your 20, 25, 30 year investment period, and I would always recommend that you invest for the very long term because that's how I I think you you create the, the best returns. You need the ability over the long term to adjust, to adapt and to take advantage of shocks as they come along. And if you've got cash, you've got the ability to modify your path, then you're able to react better and, and probably prosper from those periods more than those who have um, perhaps leveraged up too far, haven't kept enough back and aren't able to adapt to as easily. And it, it's those that um, those that have got themselves into a highly geared situation that sometimes end up getting killed when the, the, the problems come along. And starting from ground zero, starting your portfolio again is obviously a very, very large step backwards. And the uh, all the benefits you get from compounding can be lost. So for Rob and I, we like to let our loan to value drift down over a period of time. I like to get as much cash out as I can initially. So I'll buy the property 
or, you know, let's say it's a commercial building, we'll try and convert it. Then we'll look to remortgage it to pull back as much capital as we can. And then obviously keep the, the cash pot full. And, um, and, and let's say on a commercial mortgage, I get 70% loan to value continue to take the income on that asset then for the rest of our lives and use the cash to, to reinvest in other things. But I tend not to then re-leverage it back up to 70%. I let the value over time increase, which is what's likely to happen. House prices go up, commercial property values go up over the long term. And as those values go up, the loan, even if it's interest only, actually will stay the same. So you've effectively got a, a lower loan-to-value relationship and therefore the, the risk will reduce. What's also interesting about interest only is over time, as we get inflation in the economy, the real value of that interest only mortgage should erode. So if inflation is running at 2% per annum and you've got uh, an interest only mortgage of £100,000, then after one year of 2% inflation, the real value of that loan is actually reduced to 98000 And after a number of years of inflation, obviously that compounds and therefore the real loan to value will reduce over time even on an interest-only mortgage. As it happens, most of the mortgages which Rob and I take are capital repayment mortgages. We're forced to do that with the banks that we borrow from. They're generally traditional clearing banks. And with the traditional clearing banks, I tend to find that the interest rate is lower, but they put you on capital repayment. Maybe they take less risks, but I find them cheaper. And, and actually, I, I think it's probably a better way to borrow. I'm talking about loans with the likes of Lloyd's or, or maybe Barclays. Some people have historical relationships with HSBC. I tend to favour Lloyd's. I find the interest rates lower and um, they, they put us on capital repayment. What I find with those types of banks is you can build a relationship with them. So over the medium term, as you do more loans, as you borrow more and you perform and you behave as you should do, the relationship manager will usually take a view, perhaps move the, the rules so that when you've got a difficult property or you need a little bit more out on a, a loan or you want to reduce the interest rate, whatever it is, often they're, they're more flexible when you build a relationship over a period of time, they can look on their system, they can see that you've been with them X number of years, you've always paid on time, you've always done what you've said. That counts for something with those banks. Um, generally with the newer and certainly the buy-to-let type funders, it's just based on, you know, what does the paperwork say? What does the computer say? The likes of Aldermore and, say, Shawbrook, they'll certainly dig into all your, your financials, but you probably won't have a relationship manager on your doorstep putting your case forward. And that's one of the reasons I like to borrow from those clearing banks. I also like to think that the risk is somewhat reduced because you, you have a relationship with them. Uh, if they get into trouble, you're able to, or, or even if you get into trouble, you're able to talk to them about the situation. Your relationship manager, as long as he can see you're doing all you can, you're probably less likely to have a, a loan called in or special terms uh, imposed if there's a relationship there. So I, I do prefer that model. And I think it de-risks things to some extent. Another area to be cognizant of when you're trying to control the risk in your portfolio is looking at the type of loan which you take out. Obviously, we spoke about fixed rates earlier on, but there are other options which come with loans from certain banks, like they may offer you a hedging product. 
they also may let you borrow in other currencies. For example, some investors were using Swiss franc mortgages uh, a few years ago. Um, they were borrowing in Swiss francs and obviously they were getting a, a much lower interest rate because of that. Now, that can look excellent on the surface. And initially, people think that they're saving money because, say, they're borrowing in Swiss francs and they're only paying one and a half percent when the local bank may be charging three percent. But I would caution against it because you can get big swings in currency. And as the value of different currencies move around, you could end up having to pay much, much more on a monthly basis back to the bank in order to service the mortgage. The pound sterling dropped significantly after the UK voted to come out of the EU against the US dollar. Not if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. so much against the euro but let's say you've taken out a mortgage in us dollars you'd now be paying a lot more on a monthly basis to service that loan in us dollars and your rent for your property wouldn't necessarily go up in fact i don't think rents did go up so you'd be in a situation where your cash flow would decrease your profit would decrease and you need to maybe put some other cash in to service the loan. So I think currency fluctuations in terms of mortgages can be a risk that's not really worth taking, something that Rob and I don't engage in and not something that I would generally recommend. I think it's very important when you're investing in any asset class, but especially property, just to keep plenty of cash aside. I talked earlier about the self-insurance pot. Lots of people take insurance out for all sorts of things. You know, if the washing machine goes down or if the toaster goes down or, you know, maybe they take buildings insurance out, which actually you do normally need. But there are there are lots of smaller insurances, pet insurance, which actually aren't that necessary. And it's probably cheaper and better to self-insure against these risks, i.e. pay money into a, a bank account each month as you would do to an insurer. And then you can pay out of that bank account if things go wrong and you behave like the insurer, you decide whether you're going to pay out or not. That self-insurance model generally creates a nice pot of cash and that cash can be used as a, as a buffer to not only insure against the risks which traditional insurers might insure against, but also to insure against other risks like the economy taking a downturn or you having lots of voids or maybe interest rates go, whatever it is. You've got a buffer there of cash, which will see you through a difficult period. Generally, when these difficult periods come along, they're not there forever. They come in for maybe the short term, maybe even the medium term, 
and can smooth out the risk of these shocks or calamities. Another area to focus on when you're thinking about risk control within your property portfolio is the type of property that you're going to invest in. I very much believe in going deep. So instead of going wide and understanding lots and lots of different things within a a topic, it is very good to focus, to specialise and to get right in there and understand something very, very deeply. So, of course, that goes a little bit against what I'm about to say to you. But I do think it's important over the medium term, over the long term, not to invest in just one type of property. Rob and I started with single lets, so we bought a a lot of individual properties and and put residential tenants in them. Got very, very kind of skilled and and really understood all the nuances of of that investment type before I moved on to something else. In fact, it wasn't really until 09-10 before I started to go into other types of buildings. Obviously, within residential property, within that that, um, sphere of, of buying 100 grand houses, 80 grand houses, very high yielding ex-council houses. I was doing some rent to rent deals. I was I was doing some extensions. I was doing some loft conversions. I was I was doing various different things to properties. But it probably wasn't until maybe 2000 and let's say eight, which might have been three or four years in until I did my first HMO. So I got very, very good at understanding how to do single lets. Then I moved on to, to HMOs, did a few of those, didn't find that the that the management or, or the income was as good as I'd expected. And it was probably because I wasn't putting the right tenant type in. I hadn't been on a course or hadn't had a mentor training me. I'd just kind of cracked on like I normally do. That doesn't always help. You know, I, I've certainly learned in more recent years to, to find someone who's doing it and actually learn learn from them. And, you know, I, I got a series of HMOs. Uh, it took me quite a while to, to realise that I'd put the wrong kinds of tenants in them. They were LHA tenants and I need to put professional tenants in to get the income up properly and, and to get it operating as a, as a property investment. But, you know, for me, that was a, another almost sub-niche of residential investment property because I was renting rooms as well as renting houses. And what you generally find is if there are quite a few empty houses, well, look, there aren't necessarily lots of empty rooms in a town. So that kind of protected the downside to some extent. And, uh, and I, I thought it was good to do that. By about 2009, 2010, got into buying commercial buildings. Again, because I'm so bothered about yield and keeping the yields really, really high, I liked the model of buying a pub or buying an office building or buying a care home or buying some sort of community facility and converting it into HMO rooms or apartments. For me, it it did two things. A, it created an uplifting capital value, which I think is very important and allows you to to remortgage and put some more finance on the property and return your your capital, as I mentioned earlier on. But it also provided a good income once you know the 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 building has been converted so for me that was the second type of of or sub niche that i was going into of essentially buying commercial which was very battered and and still is to some extent those building types certainly through the recession got absolutely hammered in terms of their values and that just reinforced to me the importance of having a mixed portfolio getting very good in an area you know doing the same thing over and over again doing it for a few years and then maybe moving on to another type of property investment and again doing the same thing getting very very good at it 
But over the medium term, I, I certainly wanted and was very cognizant of the, the importance of getting a mixed portfolio. Those commercial buildings, you know, the pubs, the offices, the values of those buildings during the credit crunch dropped hugely because a lot of them became empty. Well, they became empty because businesses went bust. And, you know, the prevalence of the internet and less people drinking in pubs now and drinking at home or, you know, just the the fabric of society is changing because of that. And also the other issue was empty property rates. That was a shot in the dark. The government brought these these empty property rates in for buildings that had not got tenants in. So effectively, their landlords were losing the rent when the property was empty and also having to pay out these empty property rates, which in many cases was almost as much as the rent. So it was a double whammy. So it really pushed the values of these commercial buildings down massively. And um, I thought to myself, well, you know, these these buildings are cheap. They're on sale. That's a good reason to buy them because for me, generally, if... Um, if, if 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 the masses think something uh, is uh, is is out of favour and, and not a particularly good investment, that often gets me interested. Generally, the most unloved investments are the ones that that could offer the biggest return. And obviously, that then takes further investigation. But that's generally my attitude. So over over that period, I'd seen a, a lot of commercial property owners with commercial tenants do really badly and they were moving into residential, bought the buildings and converted them into residential. But it was a reminder that I should be diversifying our portfolio. Another example of that is when George Osborne started to change the rules around mortgage interest, meaning that mortgage interest would not be allowable against the rent that you were receiving or it wouldn't be offsetable against the rent. So effectively making... um, you know, residential property investment quite inefficient from a, a tax perspective. Now, if that had applied to all portfolios and, and everybody and every entity that held residential, well, that would have created quite a, a, a boon and upside for commercial and, and, you know, quite a downside for residential. As it happened, as, as time's gone on, it looks like properties held in limited companies are safe from that. And um, those rules don't apply to to limited companies. So there's a, there's an example there of a reason why buying residential can be very good, but equally, you know, a government change or something happens with the economy or, you know, maybe there's some interest, uh, some change in, in the banking sector means that, that actually having some commercial, having some residential, having some HMO tenants, having some maybe even rent-to-rent properties where you don't own the properties and maybe you're leasing a, a property you know, is, is a good strategy. Now, I'm not saying that you should go off into all different types of asset classes. Oh, you know, I'm going to buy a, a villa on the other, the, the south coast of England and I'm going to rent it to holiday makers and, and I'm, I'm suddenly going to come out of um, buying houses and I'm going to buy a few warehouses in, in Nottingham and I'm, I've got those warehouses, got them rented out. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go off and, 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 and find some some other kind of, whiz bang lease back in you know the french alps or or something like that i don't think that is a good idea i think it's very good to move on to a strategy focus on it for a period of time become very good at it and then move along to another one but obviously as you spot opportunities in each sector try and cherry pick and there's some big advantages to doing that because in the medium term as you become more skilled in understanding the property cycle and understanding where we are in it and timing your entry into that cycle better, 
you're going to be able to say, well, I think commercials at this point in the cycle, I think residentials at that point in the cycle. And even out of property, you may say, well, actually, we're coming into a, a worrying time. You know, I'm quite concerned. I might go into gold. And that understanding over the medium term is going to really serve you well. So I think it is good to diversify through the property market into different types of properties and then beyond that into different asset classes. Uh, and that's something that I've really focused on doing because I think it protects the downside significantly. Staying within property, I also think it's quite important to focus on buying within a specific area because obviously you've got to manage the properties, you've got to look after them and you get to know all the local agents, all the surveyors and you know very quickly whether property is going to work for your model or not. As soon as you get offered it, you know, you can do the analysis on it much, much quicker. You know what it's worth. You're much less likely to get the wool pulled over your eyes and it's a much safer strategy. That said, there are some important caveats to that strategy. Any area of the country could have a structural change in terms of the economy. Obviously, there's the UK economy, but there are also pockets within the UK that operate at different speeds. If you look at the north of England, that has grown much less rapidly than the southeast and London, certainly in the last few years. You know, we used to be a manufacturing nation up north. There was, you know, shipbuilding, you'd have mining, you'd have you'd have all sorts of production-based industries which are actually producing things. Well, our country's not like that anymore. And in pockets of the north of England, there are areas which have suffered major structural changes. Now, some people like buying properties in those areas because the yields can be very high. You know, if you go to Ferry Hill or you went to Chilton or you went to Middlesbrough, those kind of places, you can get properties for 20 grand and the, the yields are probably 20%. Well, you know, that's that's great. And I think actually that yield can protect you in many ways. You'll certainly have more issues over, you know, bad debt and also over problems with people trashing properties and maintenance. And if they're empty, copper pipes might be stolen. But the other thing to be mindful of, certainly when investing in areas like that, could be that it could get significantly worse. And you get streets in areas like I've just mentioned where properties end up being worth a pound. And, you know, the area goes that far downhill that you're not able to exit the investment. Other extreme examples, and this can happen anywhere in the country, there might be a compulsory purchase order. Uh, there's an area in the centre of Peterborough where there's a compulsory purchase order uh, about to be issued on lots of properties. Yes, you're supposed to get market value for them, but, you know, what's the situation with your mortgages? Can you pay them all back? There are lots of other things to consider. And if you suddenly get... If you're all, all your properties are on one street and you suddenly have a CPO, well, you may have an issue there and you may have a, a situation to try and that you need to dig yourself out of. So what I would suggest is it's important to try and invest within a locality, try and spread them around different areas of that town, but also probably pick one or two other towns that you invest in as well to protect you against the risks of something happening. And if something happens, it will just happen in a, in a pocket, uh, in a, a section of your portfolio, and it, it shouldn't cause you major issues. If I think of Peterborough, you know, we've got Thomas Cook, uh, we've got budget insurance, we've got m various other large employers. And generally, we're, we're quite well diversified. 
But there's an area around the hospital where there are a lot of HMOs. And most of the landlords there say to me, oh, it's a, it's a brilliant area for, you know, having HMOs and, and the, the rents are higher and I don't get any voids. And, and, and I think that's great. And I've got a couple of properties around there. But I'm also mindful of the fact that the hospital moved three years ago. They're in a new, you know, new place now. And I think there's a 20 year lease, one of these PFI deals. So it's not likely to move anytime soon, but it could do. And it's one of those concentrations, you know, it's a major employer. And if for some reason it wasn't there anymore, then my HMOs wouldn't be as full and it wouldn't be such a good investment. And I can think of more extreme examples of that around the country. Example might be in um, Barrow in Furness. I was there a few weeks ago. I took a couple of chaps up there who are buying loads of um, pubs and, you know, they're converting them into rooms. And they're going to have a nice portfolio of high yielding stock up there. We, We took the helicopter up and we had a good look round. And I became very mindful that the whole area seems to be supported by BAE Systems, which is a major defence contractor. It seems to be the major employer. You know, the talk of the town is, oh, BAE are going to kind of build this or they've got a new contract to do that or there's, that submarine is being built in, in, in that area over there. So that means this many jobs are in the town. Well, you know, contracts can come, contracts can go, employers can come and employers can go. And if you're investing in an area where it's very much dependent on one or two very big employers and they're not there anymore and you've paid, you know, a price for a property uh, which would ordinarily be a lot lower or you're expecting a, a really high rent because of those employers and if they weren't there it'd be much lower you need to factor that in i'm not saying investments like that are bad because they're often very good you you know having bae systems paying much much higher rents and and having a real high concentration of of good tenants like that can be very good for your portfolio and really supercharge it but don't buy all your properties there buy some of your properties in other areas which have a more dispersed type of employment and one might say maybe a a more stable type of employment. Yes, the returns may not be as high, but you'll certainly have more stability within your portfolio. Well, I hope you enjoyed that instalment, my latest podcast. Remember, whenever you're looking to invest in something, it is important to look at the downside, and I've covered some of those in this podcast. But if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. And I really mean that. The upsides when you're a knowledgeable, well-researched and especially experienced property investor are vastly greater than the downsides as as long as the, the asset and the investment is managed properly. And often people find reasons why not to go and invest in something and look at the risks and and perhaps blow them up into something bigger than they really are. The biggest risk is not doing anything. And you you really do risk your financial future and the ability to go to those exciting places in terms of the returns that you might get and the income that you might get and the capital growth you might get on your investment portfolio. So really focus on 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 the upside, you know, learn it, get very, very good at making these investments. Have a look at the downside, you know, try and control the risks. But remember, if you, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.